0: Noticed on this side of the room, the ancient principle of the Church of England of filling up from the back has been followed. <laughs> so um, uh, that is excellent. Well, here we are on the, the next stage of the white knuckle Brexit ride. Um, strange to think that a year ago, um, almost nobody, and that includes Nigel Farage, by the way, um, thought that we would be where we are now. So let me just recap for a moment on events since then before moving on to the engagement of Parliament with Brexit. The problem really arose in the drafting of Article 50 of the Treaty on the European Union, something for which we now understand we can blame my cross colleague, Lord Ferrer of King Lockhart. Paragraph 1 of Article 50 says that any member state may decide to withdraw from the Union in accordance with its own constitutional requirements. But we are, of course, the only member state without a fully written constitution. Instead, we have constitutional arrangements which are a mixture of statute, standing order, convention, and um, expectation. I have to admit that I was firmly of the opinion, and indeed said this in a debate in the House of Lords, that triggering Article 50, paragraph 2, notification of intention to withdraw um, would be a classic prerogative act, because the management of international relations is for the executive and not for parliament. That's not to say that I think that cutting parliament out of a decision is a good thing, just that it is the way that the prerogative over the years has applied to international relations.
1: And I also said
0: that the European Communities Act 1972 didn't take us into the then EEC. It was simply a mechanism by which we could fulfill the EEC obligations to which our accession Treaty committed us. A lot of people agreed with me. So, of course, did the government. Along comes Gina Miller, who has the sense to brief another crossbench colleague David Paddock. And David convinces the High Court, with the LCJ presiding, that the ECA 72 is not just a mechanism, nor even a portal through which citizens' rights are acquired, but that it was the prime mover in acquiring those rights. And the High Court found that there had to be an equivalence of hierarchy, so to speak, so that rights provided by Parliament could be taken away only by Parliament. And if we are really into an country, then I might point out two technical mistakes in the High Court judgment. In paragraph 93.1, the judges say that the long title of the bill is indicative of its purpose, Well, it isn't. The long title is simply an inventory of what's in the bill, merely to ensure that all the purposes of the bill are covered by the long title. But you can't reverse that and then argue syllogistically that the long title is purposive. The second Mistake the High Court made. Uh, and this is rather more serious because the High Court used it in support of their dismissal of the textual argument that the attorney made on this point. And was to say in paragraph 93.2 that of the judgment that the section heading of section two of the ECA 72 was an authoritative authoritative indication of what it was intended to achieve. No the clause headings in a bill and the section headings in an act are there simply as editorial assistance they're not part of the bill and neither house can amend them and in handling bills in the past on a good many occasions i like many of my colleagues simply changed clause titles to reflect amendments made to clauses i had a meeting with the uh, lord chief and the president of the supreme court last week on a completely different matter i hasten to add and i thought, shall I mention this? And then I thought, no. (laughs) So I'm sharing it with you this evening. An interesting point before the divisional court was that, reflected in paragraph 10 of the judgment, it was common ground between the parties that an Article 50 notification once given cannot be withdrawn. Now you can see why both sides were prepared to accept this. The government's approach would be wrecked if this was a switch that could simply be turned off again and the claimant's challenge would have been weakened too. But this point is far from being settled raw, and the point may re-emerge if the exit deal is truly disastrous. If I'd been advising Mrs May, I would have said to her the point of the High Court judgment, leave it there, introduce a short bill, take the Brownie points, get the bill through, you'll easily meet your target for the end of March notification. But the government, took a very high risk course, that of appealing to the Supreme Court. And it was high risk, because it allowed the Scottish Government to be interveners in the case, inviting the Court to rule that a legislative consent motion, an LCM in the jargon, in the Scottish Parliament would be required before the UK Government could notify under Article 50. Had the Supreme Court so ruled, the Government would have been in a nightmare position. With a vote in Scotland at 38% leave, 62% remain, they could have whistled for consent from Holyrood, and the only way out would have been legislation. No doubt drafted by Alice through the looking glass, because I can't see how legislation to take away the right of the need for an LCM wouldn't itself require an LCM. But to the relief of the government, the Supreme Court in upholding the High Court's decision was very clear that these were matters for the UK government as the government of the state which was the member of the European Union. Following the Supreme Court's judgment, there was a lot of rubbish talked about an unamendable bill. Well, there isn't such a thing. Of course, either House can order that a bill be not committed, so there's no committee stage, and so amendments aren't possible. That's what the House of Lords does with money bills. But that's a very different matter. If a bill says anything at all, then you can amend it to say something different. The main constraints on you are that your amendment can't be wrecking, it can't negate the purpose of the bill as of reading on second reading, and it must be within the scope of the bill. In other words, it must relate to something that the bill actually does. And in the Commons, but not in the Lords, you're subject to the Chair's power of selection of amendments. And as the bill will be in committee of the whole House in the Commons, it'll be the Chairman of Ways and Means who does the selection, not the Speaker. So we have the European Union, Notification of Withdrawal Bill, just over five effective lines in length. Um, I brought some copies of the bill, incidentally, not a huge number, but if there's a rush for them afterwards, uh, please please take them if you can get them. And uh, as as well as the government's explanatory notes, which by long tradition, it seems, are anything but explanatory, (laughs) striking an elegant balance between the apostatory and the blindingly obvious. Clause 1-2 is an interesting bit of drafting. It reads, this section has effect, despite any provision made by or under the European Communities Act 1972 or any other enactment. It's a typical attempt to stop, stop the courts getting round the primary proposition of the bill without daring to expose the exact danger that the drafter is hoping to avoid. In this case, it may well be the Human Rights Act although we don't know. But on an as approach, that's not necessary going to persuade a court that any relevant principles of the convention rights have been disapplied. Standard rule, if you insist on firing an arrow without specifying the target, you can't be sure that the courts will agree that you've hit it. In the Commons, the government has provided two days of debate, today and tomorrow, going to midnight tonight, and I assume to midnight tomorrow, There are five reasoned amendments down, in effect, anti-Brexit amendments, uh, any one of which would be fatal to the bill, and a reasoned amendment has to be fatal in order to be uh, uh, available for selection. Um, On Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday next week, there's Committee of the whole House concluding with two hours on third reading on Wednesday. There are so far 85 pages of amendments down. Uh, the two main areas where the bill is within the rules of order amendable are first, to impose conditions which must be met before the triggering of Article 50, and second, to change the effective date of the authorisation. The vast majority of the amendments and the new clauses attempt to impose conditions and they divide broadly into parliamentary scrutiny of the exit process, the role of the devolved administrations and legislatures, and a vote on the final terms, whether by Parliament or by a referendum. An exit referendum, for example, is official Liberal Democrat policy, but I think it would be very difficult to provide substantively in this bill for an exit referendum, as it will cost money and there's no authorizing money resolution. Another category is seeking impact assessments and finally, of course, negotiating priorities. Everything from the future role of Europol to the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control. Now, while politically, most MPs on the government side would find it difficult to vote for a uh, vote against second reading, apart from Ken Clark, that is, uh, on the grounds of the principles being decided by a referendum, they may find it easier to vote for amendments which would impose conditions. So the next few days, I think, are going to be deeply anxious ones for the government whips then the Bill moves to the Lords, <coughs> where there's no time to in legislation, and I expect things to follow very broadly the same patterns in the Commons, but perhaps over a slightly longer period. If the Commons is nervous about negating the result of the referendum, that ought to apply with infinitely greater power to the unelected House, and although I have a bit of a record of voting against the Government in the House of Lords, I would not dream of doing so on this. The House of Lords would be spectacularly advised to make difficulties, although I can well see it being argued that, for example, on conditions to be imposed before triggering Article 50, the Lords might ask the Commons to think again. So let's fast forward to a point where this is on the statute book in pretty much the form it is now. What happens then? We know the negotiations will be immensely difficult, even if the government manages to uh, assemble the necessary uh, expert negotiating resources, which is by no means certain that they can. Incidentally, I wasn't convinced by the government saying that they were unwilling to reveal their negotiating objectives. You reveal your objectives the moment you walk into the room with the other side. What you don't reveal is what, in the end, you're prepared to settle for, which is a very different thing. Information will be a key issue. David Davis has undertaken that Westminster will have no less information than is given to the European Parliament, which in past negotiations has been kept very fully informed. it's maybe a difficult undertaking to keep. Where there are identifiable documents, then you can say, do they have them, do we have them? But where there are private briefings, for example, European Parliament committees by negotiators, that's much more difficult. And the government will have to work very hard, I think, to avoid the, a grand swell of parliamentary resentment at the perceptions being kept in the dark. Despite the Supreme Court's ruling the devolved administrations will be an important factor, The recent meeting in Cardiff showed that the PM doesn't have very much to offer them, and I can't see how, for example, a constituent part of a member state could stay in the single market while the member state left the union. The government's understandably playing down the potential difficulties of the Great Repeal Bill, which, so we are told, will legally sever our links with the EU, together, of course, with the Exit Treaty those difficulties are huge. You can't simply import the acquis communautaire into British law when provisions depend on the role of the Commission and of EU agencies. There are about 7,900 instruments made under the delegated powers in ECA 72 on the statute book. So will the Great Repeal Bill simply provide powers to ministers to change the law with little parliamentary intervention? If it turned out to be simply a series of Henry VIII powers, with ministers having power to change the law, uh, as I said, with very little parliamentary constraint, then I think ministers would have a fight on their hands. And at the end of all this is the biggest catch-22 of the lot. Can, in practice, reject the final deal, whether that rejection comes from Parliament or from the people? If you reject the deal, then there's nothing to replace it, and the two-year Article 50 clock has either run down or is about to do so. That might bring us back to the question whether notice under Article 50 can be withdrawn, where the irony would be that if the question were challenged it would have to be decided by the European Court of Justice. <laughs> At the beginning I mentioned the white knuckle ride. There's no doubt it's set to continue and the knuckles may get a lot whiter as it proceeds. Are there any lessons to be learned? Well one problem is the learning curve is so steep that the lessons are likely to be discerned rather late. One lesson of course is don't assume the result of a referendum. Or at least, put in the referendum legislation a minimum turnout and a minimum margin. Has the referendum, the verdict of the people, changed the balance between parliamentary politics and popular politics? I don't think so. It was so clearly so generous and the margin of four percentage points was so close. Are we about to see a new age of Parliament? Possibly. If Parliament can maintain a coordinated, and responsible approach to the business of scrutinising the exit process and the exit deal. The more successful the government can appear to be in securing terms, the easier I to have. But Parliament always thrives on uncertainty. If you don't know what the result of of a vote is going to be, and the result matters, then the focus is going to be on Parliament, and Parliament will have a much greater importance. Overall, though, my advice is keep your seatbelts
2: (laughs) fast.
1: all this thing for that interesting talk pointing out especially two mistakes in the High Court ruling. So you heard that here first and then eventually they found out. Our next speaker tonight is Graham Child. Uh, Graham Child is a visiting fellow in law here at Lincoln College and a member of the University Law Faculty. Graham was previously the head of the EU department, uh, the EU law department slaughter in May, where he was involved in litigation before the EU court and commission. He's also worked in the cabinet of Judge Edwards at the European Court of Justice, and is the co-author of Bellamy and Child's EU Law of Competition, a leading legal practitioners' book on EU competition law, for some of the law, law students in here might know the name. Uh, he has lived and worked and taught in Europe, and speaks French, German, Italian, and Spanish. He was a supporter of the Leave campaign in the referendum, and is going to be discussing Britain's future relationship with her European na- neighbours. So please welcome Graham Child.
2: Um, a, a slight disclaimer, I, I'm, not, I'm not now teaching, I, I, was, I was teaching, I, I'm now on the, on the retirement list. <laughs> um, um, the, the topic is, is what next for the UK, and I thought that the best thing to do was actually to take the speech that Mrs May gave on the 17th of January and highlight some of the interesting issues. I mean, it's described as, the, it's called the the negotiating negotiating objectives for exiting the EU, And um, she starts off with a bit of a reassurance for people, uh, a message from Britain to the rest of Europe. um, We in the UK don't want to see the unraveling of the EU. Um, This is uh, certainly not our uh, our home, not our desire. But um, we uh, do. We 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 have um, a, a profoundly internationalist history and culture and that, that is, at least in part, behind the, the reasons for where we are at. Um, also, that our political traditions are very different, and that um, we have little history, for example, of coalition government. And um, so we don't, we're not very used to the sort of deal-making, which is an essential and normal part of uh, continental government. Uh, she went on to say, the public expect to be able to hold their governments to account very directly and as a result, supranational institutions as strong as those created by the European Union sit very uneasily in relation to our political history and way of life. Um, So she's a bit critical of the European Union, as you might expect when she starts out, but um, she admits that not only the UK is critical, plenty of other people are too, but she's just setting the background. And wanted to emphasise that it, it really is not a, a rejection of the the values shared by Europe or an attempt to harm the EU, but a, a vote to restore parliamentary doc- democracy and national self-determination. She talks very uh, firmly and warmly about the need to seek a new and equal partnership between an independent, self-governing global Britain and our friends and allies in the EU. She says very firmly that we don't want partial membership of the union, we don't want associate membership, and we are leaving the European Union, but we have to get the right deal. And that's her job. Um, she's looking for a, a positive, constructive partnership. She talks about the need for certainty, and uh, said says, says that that is uh, why Already, the government's already made it clear that farm payments and university funding will be continued and uh, that we plan to convert the, the body of existing EU law into British law, with all the difficulties that I'm sure will indeed follow. Um, but the aim and objective is to take back control of our laws so that our laws are made in Westminster and the devolved and uh, will be interpreted by UK judges rather than EU judges. There is um, talk in here, needless to say, about control of immigration and um, she says very firmly that we will continue to attract the brightest and best to work or study in Britain and that um, openness to international talent must remain one of our most distinctive aspects and that um, process, them, that this process must be properly managed so that the immigration system serves the national interest. But we have to get control of the number of people coming to Britain. And um, this uh, will, will... Obviously, a lot of immigration is brings huge benefits and uh, is much to be welcomed, but the numbers get too high public support for the system can uh, seriously falter. She emphasizes that Britain is an open and tolerant country and that we always want immigration, uh, particularly, I would suggest, for people uh, studying in this university and many other universities. Um, the rights of EU nationals living in Britain already and of British nationals living in the EU is a an issue that has been uh, d- discussed and has caused quite a lot of concern. Uh, uh, obviously, plenty of people, and there may be plenty of people in, maybe some people in this room who really <coughs> worry about what their status might be. Um, and she affirms that we wish to guarantee the rights of EU citizens already living here, and that the rights of British nationals in other member states should be. Uh, confirmed as, as soon as possible. And she says, and I find, thought this was very interesting, that um, she has already proposed to other EU leaders that uh, we could give people the certainty they want straight away and reach a deal straight away, uh, and that many of other EU leaders are in favour of that. But, she says, one or two are not. <laughs> we, I don't quite know. We don't know. We don't get told who uh, the others who are not in favour of that might be. But it is a priority Britain. She goes on to talk about a truly global Britain um, and need to build a British um, uh, bold and ambitious free trade agreement. That is of course the number of, of all of this. We need now to find the freest possible trade in goods and services between Britain and give maximum, uh, in, into and out of Britain, and give British companies maximum mm-hmm. freedom. And both ways of, of trading, but emphasises that this is not <laughs> part of the single market. We're not going to be part of the single market, as, as has been said before. The um, trade into in out of our trade into reciprocal trade uh, and and, and frictionless trade. There are technical things as well as tariffs. I mean tariffs tariffs are the old fashioned. Um, way of controlling trade. Um, we, we want, if at all possible, to avoid that. And uh, We will cease, obviously, to contribute sums to the EU budget um, once we leave. Part of the objective of all of this is that we want to be able to get new trade agreements with other countries and uh, that is a high priority for the government. Um, she mentions interestingly, interestingly through university, that um, she regards this as the best place for science and innovation, uh, one of the best places in the world for science and innovation. She certainly wishes to, to, to continue that and sees that there will be scope, plenty of scope and plenty of desire to continue collaboration with European partners on major science and uh, similar sort of things. And then she comes on to the um, Another very big issue for for people, which is the uh, fight against crime and terrorism, <coughs> which, uh, with which Britain cooperates with European partners in these most extraordinarily important day areas, as well as foreign affairs, generally. And uh, she wants the future relationship with the European Union to include practical arrangements on matters of law enforcement and the sharing of intelligence. And um, she points up what the UK has done and continues to do and uh, wishes to uh, find some ways of uh, that sort of collaboration. But pretty much the final thing she has to say is, is there going to be some sort of a cliff edge? Or are we going to find ourselves um, coming to the end of this two-year period of negotiation, uh, then finding that uh, we don't have, we're no longer members of the EU, and a new um, agreement trade has not been put into place. And uh, her idea is that there may have to be some sort of a transitional arrangement, but of course that all depends on other people agreeing. And um, these negotiations are, as, uh, as we all, as has been said, uh, and certainly understood by everybody, these negotiations are, are not going to be easy. So um, she um, summarises um, control of immigration, rights of nationals in the UK and British nationals in the other parts of the EU, um, free trade, new trade agreements with other countries, cooperation with crime, terrorism, and foreign affairs, and the phased approach to delivery. Those are the sort of aims and objectives. Now, um, I think that that is, that's the, what I really wanted to say, is what she has been um, pointing out and what the, the, what the government is saying it's trying to do. Um, to me, it's a very good speech. Uh, the direction of travel is quite right. Um, it would not have been sensible to try and pick, check, pick, cherry pick bits of the, the, the single market. Um, we are where we are. The idea that we might have, as some people have suggested, a, a, a second referendum. Well, um, uh, well, <laughs> maybe we will. If we get to the situation that you've described at the end of all this, conceivably, we will end up in some further referendum. But I think it's unlikely you that know, the government is certainly not going to um, consider anything like that. We have to. We are where we are, and we have to um, have a clear position uncertainty. Um, if, if anyone was to talk now, like a second referendum um, it would make negotiating impossible because the other side of negotiation would say, well why bother, um, they're going to have a second referendum anyway. And it would create a tremendous uncertainty for, uh, for business and everybody else. So uh, th- there we are, they're going to be negotiating, trying to get a trade deal. I find it hard <coughs> to believe that they will not succeed in getting a trade deal. I read in the paper only today, I mean, there are many factors why um, Europe needs to stand together, one of which is the many problems in in the world. Another is uh, dear Mr. Trump, not dear Mr. Trump. Um, He is threatening um, protectionism in a big way. In the paper today, it was said that German industry um, was saying that if protectionist moves in in, uh, America go ahead in the way he's suggesting, there could be a 1.6 million jobs lost in Germany. Well, uh, that's very serious for them, and presumably they won't want to lose jobs in Britain by uh, us um, having uh, imposing a tariff on cars being imported to Britain, which of course is what's most likely to happen if they impose a tariff on us exporting to the EU. Um, Europe needs to stand together in all sorts of different ways, and one would hope that uh, the European, the other 27, will see that as a, an important feature and will negotiate and give Mrs May quite a little what she wants, if not all. Thank you
1: very much to uh, Graham Child for that illuminating speech uh, summarizing the situation now in the UK and what the government hopes will come of the negotiations and uh, giving some details about uh, what the UK will will look like in terms of its its, uh, foreign policy in the next few years. That was really interesting. Um, Of course, we'd really like to invite some questions later on about what we think global Britain really means and what the uh, negotiations will end up looking like it might mean for different services in the UK, for example. Um, finally, our last speaker is our very own Dan Caselka. Um, Dan studies his undergraduate degree at Downing College, Cambridge, uh, where much of his degree focuses on public law and the application of human rights to property law issues. Having achieved the double first, he joins at Lincoln College to study the bcl um, previously taught by Graham Child. Uh, the focus of his work uh, here is in both the public and private law sphere, with his research focusing on UK strike law in light of Article 11 of the European Convention on Human Rights. He'll be discussing the implication of Brexit for the doctrine of subsidiarity in the UK. So please welcome down. <laughs>
3: Much for inviting me up and letting me speak alongside these two gentlemen. I do feel very humbled as am a lowly BCL student, so thank you very much, gentlemen, and thank you very much for coming to hear us speak. Now, the thing I want to talk about today is sort of the other side to our relationship trade wise, which is our relationship legally to some of the international bodies in Europe. Now, because a lot of my interests focus on public law and private law. Um, I'll be talking about this with regard to the European Court of Human Rights, the European Convention, and the Council of Europe. However, what I'd like to hasten and, and say at the start is that I think it's probably applicable to a w- wide range of international bodies to which we owe international obligations. So, I suppose I need to start by saying what I think draws these bodies together, and I think the answer Great. is subsidiarity. So, in EU law, subsidiarity is recognised in the Treaty on European Union, in Article Five and in the Second Protocol. And the European Court of Human Rights, for a long time, recognised it substantively in its judgments as the margin of appreciation. However, more recently, it was recognised in text of the Convention by the Council of Europe in Protocol Fifteen. Now, the doctrine is quite complex, and there's a lot of debate as to how far it goes. And what it entails. However, for our purposes, I think we can break it down to two points. The first of these is that in any hierarchy of institutions, decisions should be taken and goals achieved at the lowest level possible. The idea behind this is that you take decisions as close to the individual who is voting for these um, democratically elected governments or um, individuals who have in some way a relationship with these institutions. Now, the way I want to frame this and consider this is the idea, essentially, um, that decisions should be taken first by sovereign nations before they're taken by um, <laughs> legal bodies like EU, like BCHR. And I think that's something that's really reflected in a lot of what our politicians say and what a lot of people feel about these different bodies. However, this doctrine is circumscribed by a second rule, which is where the lower institution cannot achieve a goal, the higher institution will be entitled to step in. Some people interpret it as a duty to step in. That's by the by for the purposes of what I want to say. So, the core of what I want to talk about is this. The EU was subject to subsidiarity. and um, The ECHR was subject to subsidiarity. Is the fact that we have decided to leave the EU going to change how the ECHR is applied to the UK? I suppose the starting point of that is to consider whether subsidiarity was in the mind of the Brexit voters when they vote from the 23rd of June? it seems to me that the answer must be yes. The concept of taking back control, taking back British sovereignty, and independence from a ruling technocracy in Europe, all point towards ideas of sovereignty and democracy in this country. And I think what this really tries to enforce is the idea of the first limit of subsidiarity. Decisions should be taken by us before they're taken by others. And I've got to admit, I think the EU could be fairly criticised um, on issues relating to subsidiarity. There's a lot of criticism from a range of academics. Um, just to take one example is the competency that the EU has to um, harmonise the internal market under Article 114 of the Treaty on the functioning of the EU. So this, doc, this um, competency effectively gives them the power to manage the internal market in all of Europe. This is one of the reasons why we see so many limitations on some of the things we produce in the UK. So, all this red tape, if you take that view, is due to this competency among others. Now, reasonably recently, and over the past 10 15 years, we've seen judgments from the Court of Justice of the European Union. Um, and in this area, they've said essentially subsidiarity is applied as a question of whether the EU can achieve something better than the member states. Uh, relatively recently, this was um, talked about talk over quite briefly in the the judgment of the Grand Chamber. Now, a lot, as I said, a lot of academics have picked up on this. Um, it's got a name as well. A lot of people talk about competency creep, the idea that the EU kept expanding and expanding and taking control of the more and more things. Um, and indeed, Weatherall, who's an academic who I have a lot of sympathy with on this point, says that essentially the EU legislative bodies have treated the law as a drafting guide, and what they're doing is going as close to the line of subsidiarity as they possibly can without breaching it. So that's where I think the EU and subsidiarity really, um, um, Brexit sorry, was important to um, subsidiarity. It's so this idea of sovereignty, it's this idea of our control over things that apply to us. Now, the European Court of Human Rights has been uh, been criticised on a similar basis. So, one of the most famous critics of our judiciary is Lord Hoffman, who in 2009, when he retired uh, as a um, second senior law lord, had a few things to say. One of the things he said is that he thought the European Court of Human Rights simply does not take into account the democratic accountability of member state nations in a way it should he thought that subsidiarity should be applied considerably more stringently. He also said that a unified statement of human rights is quite a just and quite a normal thing to have, and it's very good in principle. The difficulty is, is that all the member states could not be taken to have agreed to an application of um, the articles in the Convention irrespective of domestic concerns. And his conclusion, um, which I'll quote directly, and I think is particularly relevant to a lot of criticism, that the EU got was this. Even if Strasbourg judges were omniscient, knowing the true interests of the people of the United Kingdom better than we do ourselves, it would still be constitutionally inappropriate for contested human rights decisions to be taken by a foreign court. Now, the UK has been instrumental in um, focusing both of these bodies on um, the idea of subsidiarity. With regard to the Strasbourg court, in 2012, we were instrumental in the Brighton Declaration that reinforced this idea on the Court of subsidiarity. What this was was a um, joint statement by all the members of the Council of Europe, effectively saying that the Court must recognise this doctrine. And indeed, the Grand Chamber subsequently did state this. In the um, SAS in France case, which is the Birkebank case, where the um, Court decided that the French bound workers in public places is legal, uh, they recognise the fundamental subsidiarity, the subsidiary role of convention mechanics. More recently, on the twenty-fourth of June two thousand and thirteen, we saw Protocol Fifteen passed, which um, put subsidiarity right at the forefront of the um, convention in its preamble. And just to take one example, the judge from Europe who's talked about this, Judge Spanner, Post Brighton, said that um, Strasbourg is now in the age of subsidiarity. So, having talked about what I think draws the EU and the ECHR together, what I want to talk about before I consider the future is one archetypal case where we see the British really riled up by the idea of human rights coming down and telling us what we should or shouldn't be able to do. I've got some t- talking about something on EU, Brexit and human rights which is actually quite brave for me, I feel. But <laughs> anyway, um, so this is the case of um, prisoner voting. So on the 6th of October 2005, the Grand Chamber decided in Hearst in the UK number 2 that our blanket ban on prisoner voting was a breach of Article 3, Protocol 1. We've had multiple judgments since from that court and a judgment from the Court of Justice of the European Union, although that judgment wasn't as strong, effectively enforcing our duty to comply with this article. In contrast, uh, Parliament's been unimpressed by what the Court had to say. Um, on the 10th of February 2011, there was a backbench business debate, which passed a motion by 234 to 22, in the following words: "This House is of the opinion that legislative decision makers of this nature, uh, sorry, legislative decisions of this nature, should be a matter of the democratically elected lawmakers of the nation, and they support the current situation." More recently, we had a statement from Dominic Raab, uh, the Parliamentary Secretary for Justice. Uh, on the 2nd of February 2016, uh, this was taken to the House of Lords, uh, one of the House of Lords committees, where he said, our position, as in the government, has been, as a constitutional issue, as much as a criminal justice issue, that's on this issue, and frankly, on all legislative matters more generally, in relation to human rights, it is for Parliament to decide whether to ease a ban. We have maintained this position very clearly domestically within the UK courts. He then proceeded to add that he didn't see a appetite for a tectonic clash on this issue. And it is noticeable that we still are um, in breach of this article and we have um, we've not resolved the declaration of incompatibility from our part as well on the matter. So with all this in mind, I want to go on and talk about what the future is going to be like. Um, the future with regard to the European Convention, the future with regard to a whole range of other international obligations. And it seems to me that the European Court of Human Rights must in some way entirely respond to Brexit. The relationship between the European Convention and the EU is too close. Um, indeed, the EU is at some point going to accede to the European Convention, although that's not been managed quite yet because the Court just of Justice was spanning in the works. Um, subsidio- the subsidiarity parallels are considerable. And I think on at least for the past few years. The European Court has been very conscious of the fact that the Conservatives managed to get, uh, get elected with the British Bill of Rights as a concept in their manifesto. Where I think we're going to see particular change is on those issues that are politically and socially focused. I think that's a big issue that Britain um, and those those for Brexit have with the EU. I think it links very well with what Lord Hoffman had to say of the European Court. So to just briefly talk about those absolute rights we all have in the European Convention. This um, includes rights like Article 2, which is the right to life, Article 3, the right to not be um, subject to torture. I expect we see relatively little change here because these really are questions of democracy, at least at their core they're not. And, Parliament and a lot of parliamentarians seem to recognise this. It's the idea of getting back to proper human rights instead of these bodies coming down and interfering where they're, they're not entitled. One of the um, things that I think we might see change, though, is the scope of some rights that we have. So one of the things that the European Court can do, and it's very um, in parallel with the idea of competence creep from the European Court of Justice, is that we can, uh, the Court can limit the extent of rights so one example which doesn't really arise in the European context but is quite interesting was the judgment in Predim in the UK where the court of justice, um, uh, sorry, the court of the European uh, Convention said that there was no right to down, uh, and they just simply refused to answer any questions relating to proportionality about this subsidiarity. And I think that's maybe one of the areas we'll see is that we see the court focus on these core principles, at least in relations to the UK. With relation to other um, nations, we may seem that they're still quite um, strong, on, um, or comparatively strong at the very least. Another issue with relation to um, absolute rights, the idea of positive rights, which are present in the Convention, but the European Court has implied into the Convention, requiring us to do certain things. Um, I do wonder whether um, we will see quite stringent positive requirements on, the state, um, on our state post-Brexit. However, I think a real change in relation to Brexit is going to be seen in the qualified rights. So these are rights which are social, economic, political. Uh, things like, well probably the most famous from people like Abu Qatada, is the right to a private and family life and Article X. And these rights are very highly debated um, and even the core of these rights are quite difficult to see. They're very vague. One of the interesting issues that I've been dealing with in my, in my research is Article 11 and the rights of um, the state to impinge on strike law. Um, So originally what we saw was quite a widening in the past, 2000 to 2010, of strike law and our rights as workers to go on strike to collectively bargain. However, post um, the Brighton Declaration and moving towards the UK, particularly frosty um, to all of the um, European institutions, we saw this get narrowed up in a judgment called um, um, RMT in the UK. So I think the parallels on social and political issues between the EU and the European Convention are considerable and will cause um, a um, a considerable narrowing in relation to the UK. Maybe not the rest, but in relation to the UK. Um, To just go back to the prisoner voting example, and I think this is somewhere I'll conclude, um, while the Grand Chamber has decided that we are in breach, I would wonder now how stringent that requirement would be compared to what it was in 2005. Um, if Parliament were to pass something, they'd have to say um, when they were passing it that it was compliant um, with the Convention, and it could very well be argued up to the European Court of Human Rights. I personally um, believe that the European Court take a very deferential view. I don't think um, that the Court can feel, or at least it seems to be a judge from the court, can believe this, that it's in a strong position to make decisions of a political nature um, in relation to the UK. Um, We are, we grumbled a lot about the EU and very much could um, import that into our conversation with the European Court of Human Rights going forward. So, to conclude, um, I do think that because (laughs) both bodies have to respect subsidiarity, we will see considerable changes in relation to us and the rest of the um, institutions of Europe. This isn't just applicable to the European Court, it's applicable to, for another example, the um, ILO or even possibly um, the UN and duties under certain conventions uh, there. And I suppose one of the questions that could be asked is if it's a good thing that democracy becomes the forefront of human rights. I don't particularly want to answer that because it's my own personal view. Um, I think you can all take your own view on whether democracy should really be in human rights, but I think this is going to be the big question in the future, is the extent to which majoritarian states can say it is our democratic right to do what we are doing, Um, and I think that the UK has really started the ball rolling with this conversation in European human rights. Thank you very much.
1: legal cases and uh, I think also a very good explanation of what the legal consequences of Brexit going to be. Uh, if anything, I think Brexit now seems even more complicated than I thought before <laughs> we had this discussion this evening. Um, we're now just going to have a discussion between the panel so that they can answer each other's uh, the points they made in each other's talks. Who do you want to go first? <laughs> Whoever has a, a, a burning <laughs> question. <laughs>
2: Well, I, I would only make a comment on what you what you've just said, which is uh, <coughs> interested that you say that the um, Strasbourg Court is uh, taking account subsidiarity more and is rather more careful of what it does vis-à-vis the UK. Um, one of the significant factors in the EU debate was the rate increase in scope that had been given to the Court of Justice in Luxembourg, which looks after EU matters, because quite recently they were given extra jurisdiction by the uh, uh, addition of the Charter of Fundamental Mm. Rights. And the big difference uh, between these two courts is that Strasbourg can't, at the end of the day, can't really tell the UK or anybody else what to do, it's very much down to member states to comply or not to comply, as we see with Britain and the issue of voting rights, where frankly I think the, the, the Strasbourg court got it wrong, but that's another matter. Um, when it comes to the EU Court, um, there's very little that a member state can do because EU law is automatically enshrined in national law. And um, so one of the benefits for those of us who think it's a benefit to get out of the EU, is that we get ourselves out of the EU court's jurisdiction on um, on fundamental rights.
3: Yeah, it's, um, it is a considerable concern, shall we say, that the, the Court of Justice, of the European Union, does have an extremely expansive um, control, particularly <laughs> as it is, its judgments are directly affected in um, member states. Um, with regards to the European Court of human rights, yeah, um, we've seen the prisoner voting example. But most that can really happen is the Council of Europe makes noises, which they have been doing in relation to um, in relation to prisoner voting. I did include somewhere I can't remember where it is in my notes, but yeah, there was a number of declarations at the end of 2015 where the Council of uh, the Council of Europe said that the UK needs to comply um, and that they want the UK to comply, and we just continue to. Um, ignore, which, to be honest, as members um, of okay. uh, a, yeah.
2: Well, let me say one has to get it into perspective, in my view, that the Strasbourg is also looking at a whole range of uh, things, and I don't know how many cases it's got against the, um, the the Russians and the Ukrainians and sundry other, but those in particular, for outright torture. And it's, <laughs> I mean, this issue of whether Five percent uh, of British prisoners should or should not have the voting right is so trivial compared with a raft
3: range of what yeah. the, what's going on in that court. I think that's where, yeah, I think, and I think that's where the parallels to Europe, particularly, <laughs> personally, is this idea that Strasbourg has just expanded and become more like a guardian of social rights than simply a guardian of actually what most people regard as human rights. Um, and I think that's why, particularly in relation to the UK, they do have to be careful. Um, I don't think anyone's gonna criticize them when they tell Russia to stop, you know, torturing someone. Um, whereas the British may or may not have good ground for saying, yeah, person number two is wrong. Mm. Several minutes before Dad actually got to prison of OG, I was certain that's
0: where you were headed. <laughs> um, uh, and in my previous life, um, this is more a side comment than directly to what Graham and dad and been saying, one of the problems that we had with the jurisdiction of the European Court rights was that it was extremely hard to get them to understand the separation between Parliament Mm. and the courts uh, and the operation of Article 9 of the Bill of Rights. And you might as well have uh, mentioned the case of A, for Mm. example, which is a perfect uh, instance of where the European Court of Human Rights did not recognise the separateness of proceedings in Parliament. And that actually all goes back to the point that I mentioned earlier on about our having constitutional arrangements which are not necessarily easily understood by an international body like a court mm. rather than a written constitution that they can refer to easily.
3: Yeah, I, I actually, when, I was, when I've been looking at some other things in my area, one of the things that we see very commonly in the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights is a dissent by one judge. You go, oh, I wonder who this one judge is. Uh, it's a case against the UK, I wonder who it will be. And it's always yes. our representative yes. on the court going, well, what you've done is misunderstood English law. Uh, uh, Lord Slim, um, was in the early 2000s, a lot of judgments where he does write the judgment. You just completely
1: missed the English law. Oppressive, oppressive yes. yes. Um, but yes, yeah, I, think that's, yeah, yeah, very. I think that was a really, really interesting talk, some fantastic details uh, and insights into the legal and political uh, issues surrounding the future proposed post-Brexit Britain. So thank you very much to our panel. <laughs>